How's everybody doing? So good. Graze in the gardens, man. Uh, you just get you. It's ex- I mean, to, to hear the gospel, I love that through the thread through everything that we, we sang today, just centrally the gospel, all about Jesus, who he is, not only who he is, the person of Jesus, but that he made a way, like Gerald, Gerald said, he's making a way, that he made a way. And uh, if you've been a part of OCC for a while and you know that we transitioned into a new series, and if you are here last week, you know, last week we talked about he is, he is God, like the, the whole series is he is, and we're going to be filling in the blank, and it's kind of like a funnel. You know, we're going to go from some of the bigger questions in apologetics and, you know, talking about the person of who Jesus is into the implications. Every week we'll have the implications of what these statements mean and what the Bible is leading us to and the implications that those, those have on our lives. Uh, but that's really the essence of the series is for us to, to really wrap our mind. We're in this relationship, many of us, with Jesus, but to remind ourselves of who he is, what he has done, and the implications of being children of God, being the, the followers of Christ that many of us claim in the room and what that, you know, where that leads us along the way. And last week we talked about he is God and we talked beyond the apologetics, beyond really the information side of things and the discovery side of things and the investigation side of things, but also saying you really can't have that without the revelation. There's always in Scripture, there's always along the way in your relationship with Jesus, if you truly do have a relationship with Jesus, uh, there's a revelation along the way. There's a moment in which um, something's revealed to you, where, where there's an experience along the way. And I think for many of us, we do grow up and we... we we have a lot of the investigation, a lot of the information, because we read the Bible. Maybe you grew up in the Southeast and went to church. Uh, and, and sometimes we miss out on the, the fact that there really needs to be a moment in which I believe with everything. There, there's no doubt, not just because mom and dad told me, not because I, this is kind of culturally and socially what I've believed because of where I grew up, but the revelation of God through the power of his spirit in which something changes. John Piper says, you can't read the book of Acts and just kind of think it's some unconscious work. Like I think sometimes in evangelical Christian world or church world, it's this thing that we have. It's like, I became a Christian. I signed a card. I talked to a deacon or I talked to my grandma or talked to somebody. And she said, you have the Holy Spirit. And the only reason you know is because I'm telling you and the Bible says so. But when you look at the book of Acts, it was obvious they had the Holy Spirit. Like everybody around knew that something changed. You had people doing crazy things in a good way, performing miracles. You had the explosion, the atom bomb of the church that was moving in power in the book of Acts. People went from this person, the Saul to Paul conversion that we have in Acts chapter 9. He was murdering Christians. All of a sudden he sees Jesus on the road to Damascus, scales on the eyes, gets prayed for by Ananias, and then he becomes... The church planter of church planters. He's one of the reasons that we're here, besides Jesus himself, that we're in this room. Because the movement of the gospel outside of the Jewish community into the Roman Empire, into the rest of the world, was initiated by the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So it's not just investigation. It's not just information. It's not just apologetics. But there's revelation along the way. And you see that clearly in Scripture. There's people that really didn't have the information and the investigation side in Scripture, but yet they had a revelation. You, you read in the, in the book of John, you read, you know, when Jesus heals a blind man, 
And everybody's contesting it and saying, hey, yeah, we're you know, asking the parents, you know, was this guy born blind? The Pharisees were wanting to shut this whole thing down and mad at Jesus because he did it on the Sabbath. And the guy finally comes in the second time and they ask him again. He's like, look, guys, I don't know. I don't know what you're saying. You're saying this guy's a sinner. You're saying this guy's done something wrong. All I know is I was blind and now I see. And that is revelation. And I think we can't miss that in this series. And today will be no different because today we're, we're talking about he is the way. Not a way, but the way. And I was thinking about when, you, when you're saying those words, like he is the way, what does that mean? Well, when we're in, in life, we're thinking about something and it doesn't, it's not in our mind all the time. For young people, you don't think about death a lot because you're young, your skin looks good. You know, it's just, but I'm 50. I'm 50. And uh, I don't know if y'all ever seen that sketch, Saturday Night Live, anybody? Um, it, yeah, you start thinking about, you know, winding down, entropy, you know, things, the world, things become more disorganized, wind down, break down, that's just the, the, the circle of life, but death is this strange thing. Um, see, aren't you glad you came? We're talking about death today. Enjoy. Um, but in, in talking about death, um, it just made me think about, it. there's a, there's a mo- kind of a modern philosopher, his name's Jason Silva, uh, hosted Brain Games, but he really does a whole lot more than that. He's not a Christian, uh, but uproots some great questions. He's a, he's a genius, um, and I always pray for him, I'm like he's going to find Jesus at some point, because it sounds like he's almost on the tip of it, but he talks about death and kind of the, almost the cosmic joke of who we are as human beings, and the fact that we wind down and entropy happens and we all die. So take a look. There's a great essay written by Sigmund Freud called On Transience, and in it, he cites a conversation that he had with the poet Rilke as they were walking along this beautiful garden. And at one point, Rilke looked like he was about to tear up, and Freud said, what's wrong? It's a beautiful day, there's beautiful plants around us, this is magnificent. And then Rilke says, well, I can't get over the fact that one day all of this is going to die. All these trees, all these plants, all this life is going to decay. Everything dissolves in meaninglessness when you think about the fact that impermanence is a really real thing. Perhaps the greatest existential bummer of all is entropy. And I was really struck by this because perhaps that's why when we're in love, we're also kind of sad. There's a sadness to the ecstasy, you know? Beautiful things sometimes can make us a little sad, and it's because what they hint at is the exception, a vision of something more, a vision of a hidden door, a rabbit hole to fall through, but a temporary one. And I think ultimately that is kind of the tragedy. That is why love simultaneously fills us with melancholy. So that's why sometimes I feel nostalgic over something I haven't lost yet because I see its transience. And so how does one respond to this? Do we, do we love harder? Do we squeeze tighter? Or do we embrace the Buddhist creed of no attachment? Do we pretend not to care that everything and everyone we know is going to be taken away from us? And I, I don't know if I can accept that. I think I'm more side with the Dylan Thomas quote that says, I will not go quietly into that good night, but instead rage against the dying of the light. I think that we defy entropy and impermanence with our films and our poems. I think we hold 
onto each other a little harder and say, I will not let go. I do not accept the ephemeral nature of this moment. I'm going to extend it forever. Or at least I'm going to try. Don't you feel it? Like in, in just him talking about it, like there's this sense. I mean, in, as a follower of Jesus, you hear his words and you get kind of wrapped around him talking about death. The fact that, that we are, I mean, I'll just use that quote from the beginning of, of the, the video. Ernest Becker, who wrote The Denial of Death in 1973, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize for it because of the insights in this idea that we're all kind of moving towards. He says, man is literally split in two. He has the awareness of his own splendid uniqueness and that he sticks out of nature with towering majesty. I mean, that's true about the, the human existence is that we know we're the high order beings. Like you can find any animal on the planet. I mean, we are it. Let's just, I mean, we can say it. We are the majestic beings on planet earth. But yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. So he's saying there's this confusion with, with mortality. Jason Silva would say, I, do, I can't be at peace with mortality. I'm going to rage against the die, dying of the light, the Dylan Thomas quote that he talks about. I'm, I, I don't, it doesn't, my soul, he says, my soul, it doesn't make sense that we are these majestic beings, but yet we're headed towards death, that entropy is a part of the human existence. We all die and we have a sense that it's not right. As high order beatings, we can contemplate eternity in, in like the infinite idea of, of the universe, but we're finite. And it's one of those things that sits out in the philosophical world that people contemplate and people talk about. How could this be? How do we explain death and mortality for the, these, these soulful human beings that are majestic in nature? But as Christians... With this tension, we, we can resolve that tension. We can resolve that tension with the Bible. We understand. Why are you majestic? Well, you're, you're majestic because you're image bearers of the king, right? You're, you're majestic because God fashioned you. You were made by God. You were made by and for God, it says in Colossians 1. So we get the idea that we're majestic. We're different. We were created. We, we have, we have an eternity set in the hearts of men. That's the nagging existential itch. He calls it an existential bummer, but that's what you, know, what you read in Ecclesiastes. Like you, you earn everything, you get everything, you live the best life you could possibly live, the most famous person that Solomon was. And what did he say? He said, it's meaningless because there's something else that, that we were created for more. We were part of the majestic line of God, image bearers of Christ. But yet there's death. Why death? Well, we know that too. If you know the Bible, rebellion. It started in the garden and it's still happening with you and me. We can't just blame Adam and Eve. We're rebels. We are rebels that have walked away even while Christ died for us. While we were walking away, while we were rejecting him, while we were looking for other saviors and other things to satisfy this existential hole in our heart, Christ died for us. We were rebels. And what? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for that sin is what? Anybody? Death. So we're jumping up and down going, we know the answer. I always think about that. I listen to Jason Silva talk because he's so smart. You know, they do all of those in one take with him. They're like, all right, talk about the existential bummer. Go. And the dude just reels off all these quotes and does all this stuff. And I'm like, mind blowing. 
But he comes to that place, he says, at least I'm going to try. I'm going to try to extend it forever. I'm, I'm, I'm leaning towards eternity. How? Is there a way to do that? Is there a way? Is it possible? And for many of us in the room that that know and follow Jesus, we're like, yes, I know there's a way. He is the way, right? And Jesus says that about himself. In John chapter 14, he's talking to the disciples and they're they're in the process of of starting to figure things out, but they really don't figure it all out until after the fact, till, till the death, the burial, the resurrection, and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. And then they're like, oh, this is what he was talking about back then, right? When you read the Gospels. But we see it with eyes looking backward and we kind of see what what Jesus is talking about here in John 14. Verse 1, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he's really talking about, in a sense, on a higher level, the things that Jason Silva's talking about. Like, what about this thing? Like, where's, how does this all end? What's going to happen? It feels like Jesus is going to leave. The disciples are feeling like he's going to go somewhere. What's going to happen to us? What happens to the end of our lives? What happens to this thing that we're doing in this ministry. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house, and he's speaking of eternity, my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare, prepare a place for you? And if I go prepare a place for you, I'm gonna come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where that I am. And then he says this, to them. It's interesting, he says it, but he, he knows they don't know, but he says it because he's, he's smart and he's Jesus and he knows something's going to come after this. He says, you know the way to the place where I'm going, knowing they don't know the way. And, of, and then you've got, and there's always one guy in the crew that's going to do this. He's probably, you need this guy, but he's annoying. Thomas, he's sitting around like this and they're all kind of chilling and they're all, you know, yes, Jesus, we know the way and they're all, they, none of them know. And Thomas is like, hey, is anybody going to say something? I'm going to say something. So he says something. He finally asks the question, and it's okay to ask. You can ask Jesus stuff. Um, he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how are we going to know the way? He's like, we have no idea. If you go somewhere, you blaze a trail, and you're gone, we, you got a, the breadcrumbs or something, bro. How are we going to know the way? we got to figure this out. And then Jesus says, and you can imagine how frustrating it must have been to hang out with Jesus. Like, he did all these amazing things. They probably would have bailed a whole lot sooner had he not been healing people and raising people from the dead. Because they're like, I am sick of this weird philosophical stuff. But it makes sense to us. But to them, they're thinking, why do you keep talking in riddles, man? Just tell us the truth. And Jesus says what? He says, I am the way. If you're thinking about a pathway, I am the way. Not only that, I am the truth. I am the life. I am what you're looking for. And then he gets very explicit and he says, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. And using that language except there, if you look at your Bible, you just underline that. Like he's saying no one and except. I mean, those are absolutes. So that, that, that creates what we call, and it doesn't fit well in our culture, exclusivity. So we've kind of, as Christians, maybe we can resolve the tension of death. We can resolve the tension that we're majestic, but it's going to be difficult to resolve the tension of exclusivity because it doesn't feel good in our culture. Nobody likes exclusive stuff. Like we all want to be invited into the exclusive things or we just want to break down the walls of exclusivity. Well, like it should involve everybody. I mean, that's the culture that we live in. 
I mean, if somebody's got an exclusive club, somebody wants to tear down that wall and get out of the, you know, like, we shouldn't have country clubs. We shouldn't have all of this stuff. It should be equal for everybody. Everybody's human. There's equality all around. Why do we have an exclusive thing? Because Jesus is talking in exclusive terms. Like, no one's coming to the Father but by me. It's only coming this way. It's only coming through me. I am the way, the truth, the life. But, but that doesn't, for us, followers of Jesus... I mean, how are you going to talk to your, I mean, and if you don't believe this is true, go, 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 go to work, unless you work at a church. Well, everybody at church would be like, yeah, I believe that. But like, it's your, it's your work. Like, you go to your work and just start talking about Jesus being the only way. Like, have a conversation about religion, because that always goes well at work. Um, and just say, you know, that's, that's, Jesus is the only way. I don't, I know what you believe, but hey, I'm just telling you, this is the way. He, he said, the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, you're not, it's, it's, people aren't going to just go, great, take me to church. I didn't know that was the way. I mean, I don't know that that's going to be your immediate response. Because exclusivity becomes a problem for people in our culture. It's one of the pushbacks with Christianity is that it's exclusive. Like, why not? Why aren't there many ways up the mountain? Aren't all religions the same? Can't we, if we believe in God, because more and more we're finding out statistically and through surveys a lot of people believe in intelligent design for creation of the universe, believing there is a higher power. But we live in the, the realm of what? No absolute truth. It's you create your own truth. You know, you live your truth, girl. You know, that's the, the world that we live in. Like you, you're going to create your own truth. You create your own identity. You get to decide who you are in every way, in every form of who you are. And if you don't, it's offensive to our culture. You get to decide. It's not about the collective. It's about the individual. We don't, we don't line up together in the bond of the human race or the bond of the group in the, you know, the, these, these different clumps and tribes. It is you know, the individual. It's how you live. It's the identity you can create for yourself through success or you know, however you create your identity or think that you create your identity, which pushes up against Christianity because what? We... We say we don't create our, our own identity. The pressure is off for us as Christians. Our identity is, has been transferred from the burden being on us to us going, I'm, I'm an insider now. I'm, I'm, my identity is set in Christ. My identity is, is formed that I'm, an, I'm a child of the king. It's, it's different. But that doesn't sit well in our culture. Exclusivity on any front doesn't work. You know, I said it in the first service. Darren gets mad at me when I talk about it. But the guard gate. Nobody likes the guard gate unless you are the person behind the guard gate, right? Because you pull up, you got to give your name. And Darren's name's tough to say. Vahinger, Vahinger. I mean, they're like, what's the name? You're sitting there forever. Cars are stacking up behind you. And then it's, what's your name, Derek? Do you know the address? I don't know his address. I've been there 900 times. So let me do the gate. Doggone it. Exclusive neighborhoods. You know, I'm kidding. I love it. Um, I really don't. But... <laughs> exclusivity is one of those things that we're like, you know, why not? It's unfair. I mean, we think about it this way too. Like, what about the person born in Madagascar, born in the, you know, in the, in the Far East or, you know, in a different part of the world? You know, it's not fair. You culturally grew up in Christianity land. You culturally grew up in the Southeast. You grew up where it was, oh, there's a church on every corner. Your parents taught it to you. You went to the Christian school or you, you know, you had Bible sword drills every Sunday and did Sunday school and all that was breathed into your existence. It's not fair. You got somebody over here that's doing this. How can you say that Jesus is the only way? They have a whole different way. 
mean, think about just five major religions. You've got Muslims, you've got Hindus, you've got the Buddhists, you've got, you've got Judaism, and then you've got Christianity. It's like, how can you say yours is better? That seems arrogant. It seems closed-minded in some way. How can you say exclusive religion is a good thing? Well, I mean, it, it is what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 7, he says it even more directly, the exclusivity. He says, in verse 13, he says, enter through the narrow gate. So he's not even pulling any punches. He's like, the gate's narrow. There's not, this, this is not something where it's just make up your own ways. It's that the, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. You know, Tim Keller says it this way. He says, you know, there's, we, we live in a world where people believe that they're Christians or believe that they're, they're like, I believe, okay, Jesus is a savior. And he's like, that's kind of a, a, a thing. You got to get to that, that place. We're like, yeah, you know, I believe that Jesus is. And then it becomes Jesus is my savior. I mean, this is, I call it the, the, the Oprah belief. Jesus is my savior. Whoever you got is fine too. Like general revelation of God. That's what that's called. Like I've had a general revelation of God. It's different. You know, Muhammad or, you know, however I think of my religion is okay. And it's like yours is okay. But really Christianity, real faith, that is not Christianity. Faith in Jesus is not just Jesus is a savior or Jesus is my savior. It is Jesus is the savior for the whole world. He is the way and there is no other way. That is faith in Jesus. That is believing that he is king. That is believing and making him in that position of worthy to surrender to. But again, it's exclusive. But here's the deal. Exclusivity is neither closed-minded irrational or arrogant. We live in a world, and in every other facet of life, exclusivity is something that we are okay with, especially when we need help. We want exclusive solutions. Exclusivity is fine. It is not a closed-minded idea. In fact, it is the way that it would be ridiculous to think of life any other way. I'll give you low-level example to begin with. Um, last, I think it was last week, I was on my way to Home Depot, um, you know, trying to fix something. And my wife calls me and says, hey, Mary Beth just called and said, Chris's main water line broke to their house. I had to shut the water off and they have no water. He's going to Home Depot to try to figure it out. Um, because that's what men do. We don't call the plumber um, who we should. But, but even think about it in that, in that regard. Like, who are you going to call at that point? You've broken the main plumbing line to your house. I mean, you're going to call the guy that makes good tacos at Taco Lou and go, hey, bro, you make a great banging shrimp. Can you come to my house and fix my plumbing? No, you want an exclusive, specific solution. You're going to call a plumber. Unless you're a real man, and then you're going to do what me and Chris do, we go to Home Depot. So my wife says, you know, can you, can you find Chris? He, I mean, I'm not sure he's, you know, knows what he's going to be doing uh, and knows what to find there at Home Depot. And I was like, all right. I'll, so I walked around. I figured I'll go towards the, you know, the plumbing aisle. Went towards the plumbing aisle. And he's standing there with PVC pipe like this, looking at the pipes like, you know, I think this is it. And then the guy comes up to both of us, the guy. It's hard to find people in Home Depot. I don't know if you know this. They're, I don't know if they're trained to like just grab a broom, not look at you in the eye and walk quickly away from you. But I think they are. 
Danny Strickland said that was his way when he worked at Home Depot. He says, you just learn if you don't want to do anything all day, you just grab a broom and just walk real fast. I'm like, that explains a lot about Home Depot. Um, so we're standing there in the aisle and a guy, a nice guy, a real, you know, Home Depot guy. If you work at Home Depot and love Home Depot, I'm just, you know, you know, don't sue me. Um, we're not a big deal, so it won't matter. Uh, so he, he, we're sitting there and he comes up and he's looking at us holding the PVC pipe and I'm nodding my head like, yeah. He's like, he goes, is that for like inside the house, like for your house water? He's like, yeah, you don't need PVC, you need CPVC. And that's on a completely different aisle. You got to go down this one, turn here, and then go to this thing and get the CPVC. And Chris goes down there, we get those, and we're like, oh yeah, this is the right one. The other ones wouldn't fit. That's good. You need specific solution. There's no like, I'll just go in and pick whatever aisle. Whichever one matters. There's any way is fine for me. You know, hadn't been down the lumber aisle in a while. I got a plumbing problem, but I want to give the lumber people a little bit of love at Home Depot. So we'll just go buy a little lumber instead of the CPVC. No, you need exclusivity, specific solution to the problem that you have at hand. Same thing with the doctor or anything like anything you get in it. You don't have a, a problem with a doctor. Like I say, you've got a severe medical problem. You don't just jump in the car and say, take me anywhere. Wherever you want to take me is fine. Your way, my way, it's fine. No, you are going to be very specific. I want to go this place to this place. I don't want to see the foot doctor. I got a problem with the eye. We're going to the eye doctor. Exclusivity. It is not irrational. But exclusivity is also not arrogant. I mean, look at the Bible. Look at, look at how the, there was no arrogance as the gospel was exploding in the book of Acts. If you've got Acts, you know, got your Bible in Acts chapter 4, Peter is coming before the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the political government of the day. There's obviously been an uprising in the beginning of the book of Acts. All these people are like, this guy, he, he was dead and now he's alive. And then he ascended. And then this movement's going from 120 people to 3,000 to 5,000 to 25,000 by the time you hit Acts chapter 4. So they're like, this is disrupting things. And the Roman Empire is trying to shut it down. The religious leaders are like, hey, this isn't what we do. We follow the law. This guy's saying that something's different. They're talking, everybody's following Jesus and not us. This is a problem. So John and Peter have been arrested multiple times. And this time they come before John, or John, yeah, John and Peter, and they, they come before the, the Pharisees, and their response to being shut down is, hey, look, we get what you're trying to do, but we cannot help but continue to talk about what we've seen. We, we can't, we just can't help it. You, he, and, he, and he even leans a little bit with more strong language. He says, hey, let's look at the facts. You guys killed him. But guess what? He, he raised himself from the dead. Death couldn't hold him down. So we're thinking, look, this isn't an irrational idea. This isn't us being arrogant, but he's alive from the dead. We think we're going with that guy. You know, we, we think we're going, as far as savior of the world, we're our best, I mean, even if you were going to best guess and we're not guessing, we believe it with everything that we are, I think I'd go with the guy that's raised himself from the dead. I mean, that's where we would go. It's not arrogant. It's not closed-minded, this exclusivity. And as Peter says, it all hinges on the resurrection. The Apostle Paul would say the same thing. Like, without the resurrection, we can't even, it wouldn't even be a discussion. You know, he says in, in Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15. 
He says in another place, he says, hey, if there's no resurrection, then this is foolishness. Then what are we doing? If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, then this, and he's not saying that like, I hope we're right. He's saying like, we've given up everything because we know it's true. We've given up everything because we believe in it with everything that we have. There is an empty tomb and you can't prove otherwise. What's interesting about, uh, and we'll go apologetics here for just a moment. You can't prove that there's no empty tomb. In fact, everything historically with a lot of non-Christian religion professors and historical professors would tell you, yeah, there's a really good chance that there, there, there is an empty tomb. There was, there's nothing in there. We didn't find the bones of Jesus. He is, and we know that he lived. That's historical. We know that he was crucified. That's historical. We know that he was buried in the tomb of a rich man. That's historical. That's outside of the Bible. That's history. That's factual. Whether you're a Christian or not, you can go do your own research. The other thing that's historical is the empty tomb. He's no longer in the grave. I don't know what you make of that, but the implications of that, the resurrection of true is true. Why does that matter? If this happened, then Jesus' claims are true about himself. And if that's true, then the Bible is true. And all of this time, the reason that we've got people all over the planet today gathering in churches to worship a God who made a way is because of the death, the burial, and the resurrection. The worthiness of his claims were solidified in the resurrection. And the whole idea of why no other way, like why not you know, why aren't all religions valid? Because they're all the same. They have this central figure. They're not. The offer of Christianity and the offer is so unique and so different than any of the other religions. I won't go into the, the, the major five. You can go, we, have, we do the life course usually once a year here. It's amazing. You should jump in and do it. It's super fun. But just the, on the simple side of it, the, the uniqueness of the offer, of the way that Christianity takes place the way that Jesus made a way for you and me. The way that he, just as we sang, uh, made a way for the rebels to come home. The way that he turned a grave into a garden for you and me. The way that he did it. One is, he is God in human flesh. God became human flesh. I mean, this idea, in, in many religions, there is kind of a stairway to heaven. You know, also in the 70s with Led Zeppelin, there was one. But the stairway is not a stairway up to heaven. How do we get to God? It was, it was God himself coming down, becoming human, like you and me, being born as a human being. And not being born as a king, but being born in the mess, being born right where we are, being born with a regular job, swinging a hammer, building stuff. I imagine he was probably pretty good at it. Um, I mean, he's, you know, people, maybe they complained along the way, but nobody went in and just said, I saw a table and I'm pretty sure he's the king of the universe. I mean, that's not what you read in the Bible. So, I mean, he was probably pretty hipster. He did wear sandals and took pictures of his art and put it on Instagram. But, but he, he, was, he became nothing to the point of experiencing everything that we experience, experiencing pain, experiencing loss, experiencing temptation, experiencing rejection that you experience from friends, from family, and then silently going to the cross, bleeding out, not, not because of something that was forced upon him, but because it was the sovereign plan of God. He kept his mouth closed 
And he humbly went to the cross, bled out for you and for me. To make the great exchange, the great exchange where he could take our sin, our shame, our rebellion, the propitiation. This is the, this is the shielding of God's wrath towards us, an angry God against rebellious sinners, because that's the truth. And he takes this, this, this sin, this rebellion, that would be our death sentence and brings it to the cross, bleeds out on Calvary and then brings it into the grave. And in the death, burial, and resurrection defeats death and sin for all time for us. So by faith, we have a way. We have a way for God to now see us because now we can have his righteousness. We can have his sonship. We can have his his viewpoint, his vantage point, God's approval, looking at us, not anger, not, but this is my son and whom I'm well pleased. This is my daughter whom I love. The great exchange, that is grace. So the unique offer, God came down, did everything that needed to be done. We get grace. We're the, the only religion that the centerpiece is grace, not what you do to get up the ladder, but what God has already done in order to make a way for you. Meaning, if you believe by faith in who he is and what he has done for you, if you realize that you are the rebel and that he's made a way for you to come home, sins past, present, future, annihilated by the cross of Jesus Christ. Isn't that crazy? He's made a way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, nothing that you could do. That is so unique how he made a way. No other religion like that. Nothing that you can read about. It frees you from the pressure of having to be good enough to be with a holy God. That's scandalous for some religious, religious people. Oh, it frees you from having to be good? People start freaking out. Oh, but you have to be good if you're a Christian because that's who we are. We're good. The rest of the world has to see us. You can't go out and hamper your Christian testimony. I don't know what hampering is. Like, uh, it's just something I heard growing up. Like, you've got to be good because you can't hamper your Christian testimony. Or at least you need to hide it. If you do something naughty, hide it from the rest of the world because you don't want to give Jesus a bad name with your sin. Don't get me started. It's not even part of my sermon, but I can get going. And it's not that God, Jesus doesn't change us, that the power of the Holy Spirit in us, that we are image bearers, that things change, that sanctification doesn't make us different people. It's that you can't pay for your sin. You can't buy your way into heaven by going on a mission trip and doing good stuff. But that is, that is the bulk of other religious activity. That's what the world believes religion is. It's I've got to figure out a way to be just to get across the line, to be just good enough to where I can open the pearly gates. I can see Peter at the pearly gates. Did I make it? No, it's not what can I do. It's what's been done at the cross. That is grace, and it is amazing. Unmerited favor. You didn't deserve it. No way you could have earned it, but he did. He did it in our place. Another unique thing. This is the third one. He is God's the first one in human flesh. Grace, God doing what we couldn't do. Spirit of God living in us, the deposit of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1. We get God in us. How crazy is that? We don't even think about that. We don't, we, don't, we don't think about the Holy Spirit living and moving in us as a, as a follower of Jesus. 
There's a deposit of the Holy Spirit. So you're not left alone to wait. Like, I pulled my ticket, I get to go to heaven, but it's going to be a grind down here. Yeah, you might walk through the fire down here, but you are going to have God with you and God in you to walk through the fire. Changing your perspective, transcendent of your circumstances, we can have joy because of the power of the Holy Spirit. The fourth one, personal relationship with God and invited into God's family. Is this the craziest thing? Like other religions, is, they're, they're religions. It's like you, you don't get to know the guy. You just to get be a part of the thing, and that's great. This is personal relationship. I have a relationship with the creator of the universe. And do we think about that enough? Like I have a relationship. Like I think it's cool to, to know famous people. Like if you know somebody, that I, don't, I mean, I don't know really any famous people. Any of you famous that I know? I mean, not yet. You aren't, you know? You might be. Probably not. I mean, I don't see any famous people in here. Uh, I'm kidding. You might just be great. But it's just like knowing something. When you know somebody, it's like we get to know the creator of the universe, the one that did it all. I mean, the most important person in, in all of humanity, Jesus, personal relationship. And the thing, one of the things that sits inside of our chest, whether you know Jesus or not, is our need to belong, our need to be an insider and not an outsider, our need to be in a group and be in a collective. And we've all got ones that we want to be a part of and things that we want to be a part of, but this is the kingdom of God. This is citizenship in heaven. And Scripture says we were, we're no longer foreigners or strangers, but we're citizens. We're no longer orphans. Now we're sons and daughters. We're no longer outsiders. Chosen, belonged. I mean, look, students, it's the one thing you want. Walking through the threshold at school is to be picked, to belong, to have a group, to have a crew. Squad, is that still cool? I got my squad. Is that cool? You want to have that. And here comes the gospel saying, you got a squad. And it's the most important one you'll ever belong to. And Jesus made a way that there would not be divisions, but there would be this collective, despite who you are, despite race, despite religion, despite background, despite what, however you grew up, Jesus, through the cross of Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus unites us all. It's an amazing thing. And I already mentioned the fifth one, resurrection, the one-time event that changed everything. Looking at the grave and going, this is not my final resting place. That's where we started in the beginning today, right? Talking about death. Grave to a garden. Everything changes. We look at death from, with different eyesight. He is the way. Empty tomb. He is the way. And that's what we want. I don't want like this weird, broad solution to the problem. I want to know him. I want to know. Think about it. Do we want to be in that, ah, I want to make up my own truth. Or do I really want to know the truth? I mean, because if I just make it up, I might be wrong, right? You know, we, we, we think about defining all the things that we want to define in our culture. I want to define this for myself. I want to choose this for myself. I want to be free to do the things that I want to do. But honestly, when it comes to God and when it comes to the creator of the universe, when it comes to eternity, when it comes to defeating death, I want to know, like, if God is someone, I want to allow him to define himself. I don't want to define him. I don't want to kind of write it down and figure out, okay, this is kind of who I want God to be. This is the way I think God would act. Let's figure that out. I don't really like what the Bible says. I think he should be this way. I think he should be this way. I'll believe a little bit about the Bible, but this is the way that, no, I, if God is sovereign on high, controls everything, he is the one that, that makes a way, then you know what? 
I want to submit to you. I want you to define yourself. I don't want you to define who God is. I don't want some guy on the internet that YouTube some good ideas to define who God is. I want God to define himself and reveal himself and tell me, just like the disciples were saying, you gotta tell us. They're like, Jesus, you are the guy. We believe that you are the son of God. We believe that you are God. And you're talking about the way. What's the way? We wanna know. They're like, hey, we don't want this person to tell me, this person to tell me, this person to tell me. We want Jesus himself to tell them, you tell me the way. I want to know the way. And Jesus reveals, scripture reveals, we know this unique offer in the way. You know, there's a lot of smart people that think they know. And this isn't me being arrogant, but over the, over the year, I mean, if, over millennia, there's people that, were, that are way smarter than anybody in this room that have been so wrong that now we look back and we're like, man, you're stupid because you, you didn't know. I mean, there's so many of them, like along the way, like they, they made statements with such certainty. And now we look back in science. I like technology, so I, I picked some of these in technology. This is just in the last hundred years. I'll give you a few of them. Listen to this. Oh, Ken Olson. I, 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 I like him, but he was wrong. Um, he says, there's no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. Nice work, Ken Olson. I mean, he was the digital equipment, DEC was a big deal in the day. Anybody was our computer guys in here? 1977, he's arguing against the personal computer, you know? Steve Jobs is an idiot. I mean, that's some of the, I mean, the things that you heard. Like, I mean, can you imagine the people? There was so many people. They're like, Steve Jobs. Imagine the guy that, I mean, that fired Steve Jobs. I mean, he got fired a couple times. Like, I fired Steve Jobs, and he went over here and created Apple. Mistake. Um, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's just like we all got computers in our pocket. He's, here's another one. I love this. He says, there's practically no chance communica- uh, communications space satellites will be used to provide better telephone, telegraph, love that telegraph's in there, and television or radio service inside the United States. There's no chance we're going to use satellites for telephones. I mean, that just doesn't seem like a good idea. Really? I mean, I can see a literally satellite blue dot just blipping on my phone right now, showing me where I am within three meters. You know how that happens? Communication satellites. 1961, that was the FCC commissioner in 1961. Oh, this is a really good one. A rocket will never be able to leave the Earth's atmosphere. Nice job, New York Times, 1936. That was true, not. The Americans, this is the British folks. I love this. I, used to, I have lots of people um, that I know from, from Great Britain that are friends of mine. I would definitely, if they were in the room, make fun of them. Um, they say, they're, and they're, this is them kind of making fun of Americans. Uh, Americans have, um, the Americans have need of the telephone. You can almost hear this in a British. The Americans have need of a telephone, but we do not have, um, we have plenty of messenger boys. Sir William Priest, nice job. He's an engineer, but not anymore. 1878, who needs a telephone? Uh, television won't last because people will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. Boy, was this ding-dong wrong. Daryl Zanuck, movie producer of 20th Century Fox in 1946. And then you've got, uh, when the, this is the, the Paris exhibit. This is, a, this is a tough one. This poor guy needed to go hide after this. When the Paris ex, uh, exhibition of 1878 closes, electric light will close with it, and no more will be heard of it. And the dude was an Oxford professor, Erasmus. Yeah, that's your problem right there. Your name was Erasmus. Erasmus Wilson. Could you imagine if he was around when the light really, I mean, it's like now, it's like, dude, seriously, light? I mean, 
We need it. Um, and this one is not, and we, I want to kind of move away from the, the ones that have been proven wrong. These are all really smart people, Oxford professors, people that ran companies, CEOs, producers of 20th Century Fox. But Stephen Hawking, probably considered one of the smartest people uh, to ever live, um, passed away in recent history. Um, but he had a lot to say about the universe, about our existence, um, about what's out there, what's possible out there. And this is what he says about Earth and us. He says, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. I mean, I take issue with that right away, just the idea of being an advanced breed of a monkey um, on a minor planet. I mean, when I think about the planet Earth and how amazing it is and that we really haven't found anything like it, um, but he, he does go on to say, but we understand the universe, and that makes us something very special. Thanks. Um, but then he goes on and says, no one created the universe, and no one directs our fate. Now, as smart as he is, I always think, in my because people have used Stephen Hawking to argue um, uh, against Christianity, the idea of intelligent design and certainly against the idea that there's something after this like that there is an afterlife that there is that we are beings with souls and not just uh, like have evolutionary drive that drives our morality and the reason that we have laws and rules and that we don't murder each other um, you know just in the streets all the time I mean we have laws against those things um, but it hasn't been proven one way or the other but it might. But the one thing that, that I, blows me away is when we read Scripture in Acts chapter 4, same words from Peter speaking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day. He says, salvation, boldly says it, salvation is found in no one else, speaking of Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And those words as much as it drives people to ask questions, to push against that because of the exclusivity. We're here today because we believe by faith. They haven't been disproven. Now, you could argue today that they haven't been proven, and we do lean in to Christianity because our, our faith is faith. Our religion is based on faith, not works. Our religion is, is living by not our eyes and what we see and what's tangible, but by faith, like it says in 2 Corinthians. But if this is true, then there's no halfway. And I think about this idea of Jesus, you know, Jesus being the only way. Well, yeah, the, the way of Jesus is narrow, but the invitation of Jesus is wide. And I think about us in here, and I, I think... Practically, when we need something, like when you ask somebody something along the way, like how they're doing and people present their problems, like you know, when you get together with people you know, like what's going on, what's, what's bothering you? When you have a long list of problems, you usually don't have a big problem. I'm just, I'm, I'm being honest. I'm not trying to downplay somebody that's, you know, been through it and had a terrible 2020 and you've got lots to complain about. Um, but I can tell you just because I've been counseling over the last you know, 15 to 18 years as a pastor, 
when somebody really has a problem, it's usually very specific and it's usually one that wins out overall. It makes the other, it trumps the other ones. Like, you know, when you got the list, yeah, it's all right, but those are gonna pass. You, you, next year's gonna be better. But when you're talking about death, when you're talking about somebody with, with a health problem, like cancer, somebody's got cancer and it's terminal. Every other problem falls to the wayside and finding a solution or, or leaning into that particular problem, it's the all-encompassing thing that takes over the mind, takes over your, it affects your family, it affects everyone around you or a relationship falling apart. Been married 25, 26 years and all of a sudden somebody says, I'm not in this anymore and divorce is imminent or the relationship's falling apart. Nothing else matters at that point. This was your person. This is the person that you're connected to. This is the person that you thought you were going to spend the rest of your life. We said forever, and it's not going to be forever. All the other little problems, they fall to the wayside, right? And then, imagine somebody that could come in and say, I've got a solution to your problem. I have a way. I have a way. I've got the cure. Like your cancer, I've got the cure. I've got, I, I know how to do it. I know, I know, I know how to fix this. Our response to that person when we truly have a need is, is what? Command me. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. You can fix this, then I'm in. I'll give you all the money. I don't care about all this other stuff. Everything else can pale in comparison. You take it all. I want to give it all. I want it. You, you know how to fix this. You know the way. You can fix the cancer. You can, you can repair what's... You, if you've got a health problem that's been on you and I know what this is like, it will take over your, your world. If somebody comes along and says, I got the answer. I know the way. You're like, tell me. Give me the diet. Give me the stuff. I am in command me. Tell me what to do. I give you my life. I would surrender to that person everything that is me and say, please. Imagine if your child was sick. Terminal. Everything you had would be at that person's feet that says, I can cure your child. Would they? I give them everything. I give them all. Please, tell me what to do. Command me and I will obey. Not because, oh, it seems like a good idea to obey. I feel like I have to obey. No, because you're like, they, they got, they, they have the way to life. It's what, it's, think about this. This is what Peter says when, when he's confused, but he knows who Jesus is. A lot of people are walking away from Jesus in John chapter six because Jesus is saying a lot of weird stuff. You know, he's talking about communion, you know, and, and, and who he is as the bread of life. A bunch of people are taken off and, what, Peter's response when Jesus says, well, what are you, you going to do? Are you going to hang out? Are you going to stay? And he says, where else will we go? You have the words that lead to life. Command me. Tell me what to do. So my question, this is the hard one for us, because I think there's no middle ground, but I think we live in religious circles in middle ground. Christian light, church light, Right? The full surrender, like this is my everything because he's canceled death, our biggest problem. A grave into a garden. Everything that we need 
the existential crisis, the thing that, that whether you're a Christian or not, you know exists. You could achieve all you want in life and you will still be empty. You will still be on the search. It will never be enough. And here comes Jesus saying, I know the way and I know how to fix that. So what's our response to the fact that he's the way? Are we really surrendered to him? Are we really in that place of saying, command me? I'm in. Where else would I go, Jesus, but at your feet? Is that our life? Or do we roll in and roll out and have our own lives? I'm just, this was the challenging piece for me because I'm like, okay, Jesus is the way. Everybody's heard this sermon before. You know, it's just like, you know, you know let's move on to the, the next week where it's more interesting. And then I just started thinking about it. If he is the way, the implications in my life should be complete and utter surrender to him because he can do something that no one else can. He's accomplished something that no one else ever will. Have I fully surrendered? Have I put myself every day, every minute, every hour believing, Jesus, I need you every minute, every hour. Command me. Take over my life. My life is no longer my own. Surrender. And he's worthy of surrendering to. I think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Exclusive, yes. Salvation, narrow way. But Jesus' invitation is as wide as it gets. Look at the cross. I love the picture of the cross in his posture on the cross. He's got two thieves that have no shot at God, just like you and me don't have a shot. And one of them says, I believe you, you are who you say you are. And just as quick as he says it, gets the words out of his mouth, what does Jesus say? Today you will be with me in paradise. That's inclusive. It's exclusive the way, exclusive, but it's inclusive. It's anyone and everyone invited into the unending ocean of grace. He desires that none would perish, is what scripture says. Arms wide open, spread out for you and for me. And he's worthy to give your life to because he is the way. He is the truth. And he is the life. Let's stand. You know, I was thinking about just as we move into to ministry, just... like I said last week, I think as we, we do prayer ministry, it's not just this time where it's like, okay, we're just going to get prayer. A few people are going to come forward. We're going to pray for some people. But this is the moment in which we can make steps towards, towards God. Make steps of surrender towards Him. And there's just that picture of sometimes there needs to be physical movement in that place where we aren't worried about anybody around us. We're not worried about what people think. We're not worried about anything, but we're like, you know what? I need to, I need to stand in God's presence, but I also, I need to move into that act of, of following him. And sometimes there's a physical dropping of the nets. There's this physical surrender. And you may have been a Christian for a long time, but this idea of Jesus being Lord of your life, and I know that sounds religious, but like he's everything. He's worthy of all of it. He's worthy of me to proclaim to him, command me and do what I want to do what you want me to do. I want to live where you want me to live. I want you to be the filter for my life. I want everything to be at your feet. My life is no longer my own. Because that's the question I had to ask myself. Am I there? Sometimes that's a daily surrender. Sometimes that's that. We, we take these moments to put ourselves in that position and it's the best place that we could be. 
So in a moment, we're going to ask that people want to, to receive prayer. But part of this is, is like I said, it goes beyond investigation and you know, getting information about God, but I want to experience God. I want to be able to get into that place and surrender and lay my, lay my life before Jesus. And maybe this posture in prayer ministry, and what you'll do is you'll just walk forward, hold your hands out like you're receiving a gift, close your eyes. And, and that's just your, some of you may be coming forward for healing, but some of you, it just might be, hey, I need to surrender my life. My family needs to surrender their life to Jesus in a way that's different than me being a Christian. I've been a Christian for a long time, but I'm talking about everything. Surrender, a restructuring of everything. Some of you right now, you're thinking about it, you're like, no way, I'm coming forward for that. You know, Because people are gonna be thinking, is he a Christian? Why hasn't he surrendered his life yet? This is something everybody in the room could do. Like I, I feel like I wanna jump down and just turn around and surrender my life to Jesus because it's a daily surrender. And I'll just say this, you may be the person that leads somebody else to come forward and surrender their life. You're feeling it and you're like, I don't know that I should, but I'm just telling you, you, you may be that first person to step forward and walk forward and somebody's watching you from behind going, I know them, they're really smart and I've seen them out in life. I never would have thought they would have walked forward and opened their hands, closed their eyes and surrendered. But they, if they can do it, I can do it. And somebody's gonna follow you and you will, you will lead somebody in your, in your surrender you'll already be leading people. It's the way that the gospel worked. It was a handful of them, then it was 120, and then it was 3,000, then it was 5,000, then it was 25,000, and the movement of God started to happen. That's how revival happens. It starts with the one person that's like, I don't know if anybody's going forward, but I really don't care. I'm giving my life to Jesus today. I'm giving my life to Jesus. And other people see that and they're like, you know what? They're right. He is the way. He is worthy of everything. Students, same thing for you guys. I think it's always looking around and seeing who's, is anybody going forward? I've been forward once before. I think that's enough. You know, we think that way. What are people going to think if I come forward? What are people going to think if I surrender in this moment? Am I going to be the only one? He is worth it. If you were the only one, how cool would that be? You're his favorite at that point. <laughs> so that opportunity is here. As we, as we worship, just let God work on your heart. You'll know if you need to respond. So let's pray. God, we love you. We love who you are. We love that you, you don't leave us where we are. You loved us so much that you met us exactly where we were in our brokenness and our sin, but you love us too much to leave us in that place. So God, I just pray right now that you, this becomes more than just church service where we hear some good stuff, we sing some songs, but there's transformation right now in the name of Jesus.